0: Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. In this world where more and more jobs are being automated by technology, Creativity remains human's unique selling point. So with this in mind, our mission is to nurture this most valuable asset. This series is made up of some of the brilliant talks we have at Second Home throughout the year. We've pulled a bunch of them together to give you new tools and ways of thinking, and hopefully enhance your creativity. My name is Rohan Silver. I'm co-founder of Second Home. Everything I've ever done, really, has been about trying to take ideas from one domain and incorporate them in another. I think that's kind of what creativity is all about. And that's why I co-founded Second Home and why I'm doing this podcast. Today, we're hearing from the fantastic Dylan Jones, who visited us to speak about his new book, David Bowie, A Life.
1: For me, the important thing about writing this book is, I mean, I've read all the Bowie biographies, I know how high the bar is, and I had no interest in writing another book like that.
0: As editor of GQ, author driving force behind Men's Fashion Week, it's hard to think of a better person to begin our exploration into creative diversity than Dylan Jones.
1: I'd been in love with Bowie for quite some time. Uh, He actually asked me for a light for his Marlborough. And I was... You'd never seen a happier 21-year-old. really <laughs> haven't.
0: <laughs> Dylan recognises Bowie not just as an iconic musician, but also as a relentless innovator. So for me, this is a perfect way to start the series with Dylan Jones and David Bowie. So listen, before we start, I know that in this podcast, Dylan Jones throughout says David Bowie. I couldn't help but call him Bowie. We could call the whole thing off, but each to their own. Like many of us, Dylan has been greatly inspired by Bowie. And it's often that very first exposure to someone truly special that can ultimately change the course of our lives. So I was curious about exactly when this moment was for Dylan.
1: Yeah, I was a very impressionable 12-year-old watching television in the sitting room of my parents' semi-detached house in Deal in Kent. Yeah, I was one of the generation that, that saw that performance and it sort of changed my life and put me on a course and, and confirmed certain things to me that I thought were right in terms of self-expression. In fact, just uh, the, the last sort of meaningful time that I spent with my father uh, just before he died Uh, He was asking me what I was writing, and um, I was writing the previous David Bowie book, which is about that performance. And um, I was talking about how extraordinary it was, the music, the sexuality, the colour, the sort of kaleidoscopic nature of the clothes that everyone was wearing. And he let me bang on for a while And then um, he looked at me and said, "Um, you do realise you had a black and white television, don't you? (laughs) So so a lot of the stuff that I remembered, I obviously didn't remember. It was sort of received from elsewhere. But yeah, uh, yeah, I I was part of that generation who saw that performance on Top of the Pops. And it opened
0: up a whole different world to me, really. For those people who maybe don't know this particular performance in 1972, there's a sort of, every bit of it's iconic, but there's a moment where... How he does it, something very special with Mick Ronson.
1: There's a, there's a moment where he casually puts his arm around uh, his lead guitarist Mick Ronson's shoulders. Uh, this was deemed at the time to be a sort of a way that acknowledged that the fact that, A, that he may be bisexual or bicurious or had a, a more complex sexual nature than perhaps um, most pop stars did at the time, If you saw that performance on Top of the Pops, which is a very generic, boring uh, pop programme, and these days looks very, very archaic and and almost silly, but you looked at it and there was extraordinary music, there was extraordinary fashion, and there was a sort of openness and a playful nature about his sexuality, which again, I think a lot of people of my generation found Mm. very,
0: very intriguing. Listening to Dylan's first experience of Bowie reminded me of my own.
1: You the new butler? (laughs) It's been a long time since I've been the new
0: anything. I was six years old, I think, and I was watching David Bowie on TV and he was singing with Bing Crosby. I'm David Bowie, I live down the road. Oh, Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? It was an old Christmas song, he was singing Little Drummer Boy. And I, for for years after that, uh, really thought that David Bowie was an old 50s crooner. I didn't really think of him as this kind of modern pop star. But I think that's the point about Bowie. He was such a chameleon. He could inhabit any role so convincingly that he could persuade anyone that he was anything. I was curious to know what Bowie's life was like growing up. He had a very
1: particular childhood. And even though he lived in Brixton, Brixton at that time was very different from what it became. Mm. Uh, In fact, it's probably slightly moving back now because it's become so gentrified. But at that point... A lot of the property was owned by Winifred Atwell, the entertainer. Right. Uh, and a lot of people who worked in uh, television, in the light entertainment industry, in music hall, lived there because they were involved in that world. I mean, John Major's father, yeah. who was a circus entertainer, lived there. Yeah. Um, and because Bowie's father worked for Bernardo's in the PR department, at an early age, he was exposed to lots of people in the entertainment industry. So, he actually thought that uh, growing up and becoming an entertainer was, was quite normal. He didn't think there was any, anything strange about having an ambition to grow up and actually
0: be in this world. Mm. And the, the sort of influences on Bowie, I mean, you know, such a uh, plural, complicated character and a diverse set of musical. Inspirations later on. What were the early influences? Um, I saw Chuck Berry popping up, for example, uh, in the list of in the list of influences. Uh, Little
1: Richard was a sort of formative influence on on Bowie. But the thing that I've always found fascinating about Bowie is that when he became famous in 1972, it, it's as though he arrived fully formed mm. out of nowhere, because he looked very different. He had a different sensibility. His music was odd. But the thing is, at that time, and for many years afterwards, most people didn't know that he'd actually spent nine years before that, a good decade, trying to be famous. Mm. It wasn't though Ziggy Stardust was the first thing he'd attempted. He'd literally tried everything. He tried R&B, he tried to be a mod, he was a folk singer, he'd done mime, he'd done all of these things and he was always slightly behind the curve. Right. He wasn't quite good enough, he was always a little bit late. Mm. He hadn't developed the ability to harness the obvious enormous amount of innate talent that he had but also in terms of... Bandwagon jumping, that's exactly what he was doing because he jumped on bandwagons and jumped as he jumped on them. They sort of scooted off in the other direction. Yeah. I think my inclination would be if I'd have spent nine years trying yeah. to be famous, trying to be successful, and I'd finally discovered something that was successful, I'd have probably stayed there forever mm. and sort of got, this is it, I'm never going to leave. I'm going to be Ziggy Stardust forever. But after sort of two and a half years, he'd had enough and again he sort of wandered off due to excess and sort of creative expression I suppose
0: I think often with creative people we tend to assume that the genius was always there so it's refreshing for me to hear Dylan describe how failure contributed to Bowie's success you know I feel at times it's natural for all of us to see failure as the end of something rather than the potential for something new and I certainly wish that's something I'd known earlier on in my career Although it's hard at the time, the trying and the failing and the picking yourself up and doing it all over again, I think it's often essential in reaching that breakthrough moment. For Bowie, that moment was Space Oddity. Space Oddity
1: was actually a happy accident. It was a song that he'd written as a duet uh, that he used to perform at the Three Tons in Beckenham, And it was a hit on the back of the moon landings and Kubrick's Space Odyssey, and he was, for about three years after that, he was referred to as David Bowie, the one-hit wonder, because it was a novelty song, right. and although it's much revered now, for years it was thought to be a sort of novelty song, and it certainly didn't make him famous, because after that he didn't have a
0: mm. hit for another three years. There's maybe my favourite sort of vignette in the book is a story you tell about how *The Stardust might have come about through an sort of accidental and slightly disastrous encounter with the Velvet Underground.
1: This is a story where Bowie finally goes to America and has recently become enamoured with the Velvet Underground. He goes to a club, he sees them perform, and then goes backstage afterwards to fall at Lou Reed's feet to tell him how important he was and how much he enjoyed the performance, etc, etc, etc. And this goes on for a while. Then he is informed <laughs> as soon as he stands up that actually Lou Reed left the group nine months previously. So, um, <laughs> um, But the thing is, that I spoke to 150 people for this book, and there are the 50 people that you need to speak to, mm-hmm. pretty much, in order to be taken seriously as a biographer. Uh, and then there are the other 50 people who deserve just as much airtime but perhaps don't get called on as often. And then there are the other 50 people when you're interviewing someone and they said, have you spoken to Kevin? And you go, who's Kevin? And then you endeavour to try and get an interview with Kevin. And so there are a lot of Kevins in the book.
0: Well, I, I don't know if she counts as a Kevin, but Mary Finnegan, when Bowie was living in um, Beckenham, Mary Finnegan was his landlady and lover. I think she was several years older than Bowie. And uh, she describes him, though, as very sexually sophisticated, which I think is what all of us hope our ex-girlfriends describe <laughs> as um, But it does suggest someone... <laughs> and rarely do. And rarely <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mary Finnegan is really interesting woman. She was a um, lovely woman to interview. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, she was his landlady and then lover... Slightly expediently, I think, on Bowie's behalf, but um, <laughs> they had a two- or three-year relationship, I think, and then he went off and he became famous. And then he invited her to the Ziggy Stardust Earls Court concert in 1972, and there's an after-party afterwards. She goes to the party, and chit-chat, chit-chat, and then the party's coming to a close, and she describes Bowie going out to her, taking her hand, leading her to the door, and saying, Mary Finnegan... It's been fantastic knowing you. And then closing the door. (laughs) But the thing is, he doesn't feel aggrieved by that. And that, metaphorically and literally, that experience is repeated by dozens and dozens of people in Mm. the book because he had this ability to have very, very close, intense relationships with people for a while. And then it was over. He stopped Mm. calling. Mm. But almost nobody I spoke to felt... That they'd had something bad done to them why do you think that is because i think that being in his orbit collaborating with him working on a record working on this working on that i think was enough Mm. i spoke to so many musicians who perhaps had worked for him for three five seven eight years and then they didn't get a call for another 15 years and they think
0: "Oh, oh
1: okay then um because who wouldn't want to work with david bowie
0: Dylan's right. Who wouldn't want to work with Bowie, if only for a minute? Bowie was always drawing sustenance from the different people around him. You know, and I think this is a really humble way to work and create. Knowing that you alone can't innovate, that it requires creative collisions with others around you. And, you know, whether the relationship is good or bad, there's almost always something to gain. So for me, it was fascinating to hear about the relationships that mapped Bowie's career. It's clear that collaborators played a big role. I mean it is incredible that when he lived in Berlin, he was sharing a flat with Iggy Pop and Brian Eno and I do love the fact that uh, someone says that uh, there were lots of rows in this house. I've assume they just talk about music and art the whole time. It turns out uh, a lot of rows about what's in the fridge and uh, <laughs> and who's been drinking all the milk and things. so it's great to know that even Iggy Pop and Dave Barry can argue about things like that, but that openness to Collaboration whilst also being sure of what you're working on is a, a difficult balance.
1: He was a great conductor. He cherry picked people. He was smart. He, he was like a football manager. He picked people because of what they could do. And in the process, he often made them better than they had been previously. Mm. And I think you can certainly say that about Iggy Pop. Perhaps you can say it about Lou Reed. Mott the Hoople, N- Niall Rogers, lots of people. Mm. But even those musicians who perhaps again may have felt a bit peeved. Niall Rogers says, he's, he told me that for years he was a bit pissed off because he thought he was responsible for Let's Dance. And actually when he read all the reviews and he read all the interviews, the producer wasn't really mentioned. This was David Bowie. Mm. But then he came to realise that, that's David Bowie's prerogative, uh, and he can pick and choose. I think he was a bit disappointed that he wasn't chosen to do the next record, but then David Bowie decided
0: to move on because what he wanted to do something else. Mm. So they're sort of endlessly wanting to evolve and move on, there's a brilliant quote from Bowie in your book, and uh, he, he says, Diamond dogs scared me, Says Bowie, saying this, because I was mutating into something I didn't believe in anymore, He was sort of repeating himself. And it was so easy. And, you know, I think you touched on this before, but most of us, I think, if you've found something that is working for you, especially having struggled to get there, we'll we'll keep doing it. What is it about him that he, you know, was was so restless?
1: I think it was an immersion in and then a deconstruction of fame. I think that it can be incredibly destructive. Mm. And I think that this is a, a very typical narrative for lots of people particularly young people who become famous quite quickly, and they burn out, and he burnt out. He became very famous, and he was suddenly indulged and was allowed all the excesses that you can have when you're a pop star in the early 70s. And I think it completely... Well, it did. It completely freaked him out, and he got burnt out very, very quickly and sort of ran away. But at the same time as running away, he... I think for most people when that happens, for lots of people, particularly people in, in the music business, your talent goes with you. But for him, it was the other way around. And he found it within himself, a new sort of creativity which he needed to use to get out that was perhaps not so closely aligned
0: with fame. Mm. All the people in the audience that are you know creative and, and trying new things and innovating you know, will know that oftentimes things don't work and that's part of the process. How how, how do you think Bowie dealt with that? I'm thinking of, say, albums like Tin Machine that were less critically uh, acclaimed. Everyone hated Tin Machine. (laughs) (laughs) Even people in Tin Machine hated Tin Machine. (laughs) (laughs) But how did, you know, was that, Was that part and parcel of the creative process for him, do you think? Or or did he take that?
1: I think in in some respects, I think there's two issues here. The one which is well known, which is that when he tried to follow fame or chase success for success' sake, he sort of fell on his face. And that happened during the second half of the 80s when he said, I'm going to be an entertainer now, I'm going to make lots of really popular records. Mm. And they were all terrible and everyone hated him. And then he became sort of renowned for... This sort of reinvention shtick—what's Bowie coming back as now? And I, I think it, that that was a bit of a trap for him because he had to sort—he felt like he had to keep reinventing himself, mm. whether he was working with the likes of Nine Inch Nails, whether he was doing drum and bass. Mm. It did show a sort of innate, almost latent desire to, or a relentlessness for experimentation. There are very few dissenting voices in the book, but Peter York said that, I interviewed Peter York, Peter York knew him quite well, he said that um, he used to get these calls from artists in the 90s when Bowie was going through his art phase, uh, when he was um, spending a lot of time with the likes of Damien Hirst and Tracy. Uh, Peter York would get these calls from artists saying, David Bowie's in the studio and I can't get rid of him. <laughs> um, because he would sort of adopt people. And there was a period, in mm. fact, there were many periods where David Bowie wasn't cool. And mm. it wasn't cool to have David Bowie hanging around your studio because yeah. he just made an awful drum and bass record and he was wearing his <laughs> funny clothes. And, you know, can you please come Martin and get, <laughs>
0: get rid of him, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd live with that, I think. But uh, let's talk about the sort of, you know, his, his final... Days. There's a a beautiful sentiment from Baz Luhrmann in the book you interviewed. It says of David Bowie, an incredible creative wellspring towards the end of his life, Lazarus and Black Star. Baz Luhrmann thinks that what David Bowie essentially was doing was saying about death uh, and and illness. Uh, I'm going to create my way out of this. I'm going to find some joy and creativity in this darkness. Is that something you think... How he did consistently, whether it was fame, whether it was breakdown, whether it was death, there was an ability to turn that into art.
1: He certainly had an ability to turn it into art, and I think all of it had meaning. However, there is a lot of uh, almost happy accidents, and I think you can look back, as people do, Mm. exhaustively now at his career and think, he's doing that because of X and Mm. he's doing this because of Mm. Y. And actually, if you look at the last couple of records... They weren't meant to be sort of requiem. Uh, I mean, obviously, towards the the end-end, when he knew he was dying, the video certainly did. Mm. But in terms of the music, that's not strictly true. I think, um, speaking to lots of people who worked with him when he came back from his sort of semi-retirement, was he just wanted to make records again. And he had this reservoir of great songs. Mm. He was a different person because he hadn't made a record for 10 years. He was older, he was quieter, he was more reflective.
0: What I found inspirational about Bowie is that even in his darkest days, he was always a creative. And what I really wanted to ask Dylan was about Bowie's incredible ability to stay so focused right to the very, very end.
1: Well, I think it's very easy for people to criticise Bowie for being someone who pretends that everything that he did was somehow phony or fictitious. I think what people often forget is that he was an incredibly gifted songwriter and musician, which is basically what he did for a living. All the other stuff is sort of artifice. Mm. And you talk to someone like Rick Wakeman, who is a, a gifted classical pianist, and he said that um, his experiences with David Bowie recording Life on Mars in the studio, he never seen anything like it. Someone who was pitch perfect, someone who could focus, someone who knew precisely what to do and knew precisely how to get someone else to do something. Mm. Um, so I think there's um, a lot of the things which we project upon Bowie are sort of not true because...
0: He was actually a genuine artist in that sense. There was a sort of technical ability, a mastery of subject, that sort of, in a sense, made everything else possible. Is that, is that, is that sort of fair to say?
1: Yeah, that but he was, he was a musician because if you look at his art, his, his art's interesting, but it's not very good. And he made lots of films. Not many of those are very good. I think, like lots of musicians who make films, he has one film which is a a sort of an extrapolation of his character. Which was for him, it was *A Man Fell to Earth*, and for Madonna, it was *Desperately Seeking Susan*, Mm. and the film that Eminem made. I mean, they probably, you know, they have one film in them. In Mm. fact, I spoke to lots of producers and directors who worked with Bowie, and he said that for him, it was almost like a vacation. Right. It's like, well, I'm here, just tell me what you want me to do. In fact, Jeremy Thomas was very good about this, about Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, because they created the entire role to pander to what he could actually do, how long he could talk for, how far he could project, the expressions in his face, et cetera, et cetera, because he was incredibly limited. So I think it was really only as a musician that he was really, really, really gifted. Mm -hmm. But obviously he was really, really, Really really gifted. gifted.
0: It's funny to think of Bowie having creative limitations. Us fans tend to think he was just brilliant at everything. So I, I reckon it's pretty reassuring to know that even Bowie had to take the time to understand his own shortcomings. And that maybe, in knowing our own boundaries, we can focus on what we're good at. Although Bowie may not have been great at everything, he was described as having impeccable taste in art. And sat in the front row of the talk was Dan Suditch, the director of the Design Museum in London. And he had a question for Dylan about David Bowie's art collection. After Bowie's death, there was a huge
1: sale at Sotheby's of his extensive collections of art and design. Um, notwithstanding your observations about his embarrassment in various artist studios, was there much to learn from Bowie about that collection? It was big. <laughs> um, two things. I mean, he, he, he collected a lot of British painters, a lot of figurative work. And he had incredible taste. I don't think it was a collection. I mean, I don't think, think you could make a museum of the pieces of work because it wasn't cohesive. But they were just things that he, that he bought because he liked or he thought they were going to go up in value. I mean, it was um, uh, what I learned is that he had great taste and he listened to people. Again, in the same way that he chose the right people to work with to, to make pop music. When he was collecting art, he chose the right people to listen
0: to to choose what to buy. Another really interesting question from the audience uh, asked about David Bowie's relationship with his motherland. He was very proud to be British, even though he lived in many different places. He lived quite, not frugally,
1: but he didn't sort of adopt the sensibilities and the lifestyles of, of the places he moved to. One story which Hannes Qureshi told me, which I was thought was quite funny, that when he moved to Switzerland... He moved to Switzerland at the end of the 70s to escape tax inspectors and drug dealers. And he didn't know anyone. And the only person that he knew was Roger Moore. And Roger Moore... Was he
0: hiding out for the same
1: reason? <laughs> couldn't possibly say. Um, maybe one of those. Um, and uh, there's this story that one day, there's a, about 5.30, there's a knock at the door and it's Roger Moore. Hello, David. And Roger Moore comes in and sits down. They they have a cup of tea, and stays for a drink. He stays for dinner. He tells lots of entertaining stories about uh, the James Bond films, and then a merry time is had by all. And then he go, goes off. Next day. 5.30, he's a knock on the door, it's Roger Moore again. Roger Moore comes in, sits down, they have a drink, he tells the same story. It's not quite as entertaining as they were the, the, the day before. And he said that after two weeks, at 5.30, every day, David Bowie was hiding under his kitchen table,
0: just in case Roger Moore was going to come round. Anyway, there we are. Amazing. Um, can I please ask you to give a really big second home thank you to Dylan. After talking to Dylan, what really stayed with me was this idea of perseverance, the importance of just keeping going. And, you know, when it comes to collaborations or trying something new, jumping across to a different field or industry completely, although you can't predict success and indeed it doesn't always work, you know, I think something good always comes out of that experience of trying Embracing failure is something that I find difficult. I'm sure we all do, but, you know, it's clear from everything Dylan said that this was really part of Bowie's success and, you know, his ability to react and adapt and indeed succeed. And as someone who really, really believes in that way of thinking about the world, it's a lovely thing to hear validated by someone as truly brilliant as David Bowie and someone as open and generous and thoughtful as Dylan Jones. This episode of Creative Collisions was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. It featured Dylan Jones, editor of GQ, talking about his new book, David Bowie, A Life, and was presented by me, Rohan Silva. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you want to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.io.